Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Well, I am very excited to introduce once again to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Monsignor Charles Pope, who attained his Master's of Divinity and Master's of Arts degree in Moral Theology from Mount St. Mary's Seminary in 1989. Ordained to the priesthood in that same year, Monsignor Pope has served at several parishes in the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., and was named a Monsignor in 2005 by Pope Benedict XVI. He has served as pastor of Holy Comforter St. Cyprian Parish in D.C. since 2007 and also blogs regularly for the Archdiocese of Washington. It is an excellent blog, blog.adw.org. Please join me in welcoming Monsignor Charles Pope. Monsignor Pope, thanks for being here. Thank you. Well, let's pray. Lord, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm actually very humbled to be talking about asceticism because I'm not always so good at it myself. But help all of us to at least see um, what you are calling us to do and and to rejoice in the freedom that uh, asceticism and moderation give us and uh, the key that it is to unlocking your blessings. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, I'm... Uh, not known for being a, a slender man. So as I talk to you on asceticism today, uh, I, I'll, I'll maybe get to that a little later, but I do think there's a, um, uh, a lot to be said for, you know, just that we, it, it's something that to one degree or another, all of us struggle in some areas of our life. And sometimes those struggles are, are, are meant for us. Um, when I say that, not, not by way of excuse, but you know, St. Thomas said something that's dangerous and that only a saint can say. And then he says, without a doubt, pride is our most deadly sin. So deadly is it that as a remedy, God actually permits, he does not cause, he permits other sins as a remedy. <laughs> and Thomas points out, who I don't think was known to be very thin, but um, uh, that uh, normally these are the sins of the flesh. In other words, uh, uh, gluttony and and, uh, and uh, lust, you know, and so we uh, these are shall we say embarrassing in the sense that they they humble us a great deal the, these struggles and um, remind us that uh, we're not all that. On the other hand, you know, to maybe kind of paraphrase Saint Paul, you know, we're, we're sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But does that mean that we should sin so that grace abounds? Heaven forbid! No. <laughs> But it is an interesting insight. Now, with that in mind, uh, what I want to do uh, today is, uh, I think every talk probably should answer three questions. What, 
so what and now what, right? So what, so what and now what? That's the basic outline of tonight's talk. Um, what is asceticism? What is moderation? We'll look at that. Um, then the question is, um, so what? I mean, why, 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 isn't, why is asceticism and moderation important, right? And why is that a big deal for us? Uh, why should we be, spend any time thinking about it? And then thirdly, uh, the now what might be, again, you were already doing a lot of that. But, uh, you know, in other words, what are some ways we can maybe mortify or moderate um, our, um, our, our, our senses? And how can we grow uh, in a sense that, um, that these things are very important for us to practice? And, um, but also, I want to talk about some pitfalls to avoid, because there are indeed some pitfalls related to spiritual pride that can easily come from uh, from both abstinence and moderation or asceticism and moderation. All right. Now, um, Father uh, Hezekiah actually came up with the title, uh, you know, you know, is it going to be sackcloth and ashes or swimsuits and coffee? <laughs> and he, he got this idea for the title when he was at a, at a liturgy, and we won't have to say where, uh, and not necessarily his own place, but let's just say that the, the people showed up um, and they were quite uh, relaxed, shall we say. They had on shorts and T-shirts and uh, they hardly looked at all like uh, they had bottles of water. My heaven for Fen, you might go like a half hour without a sip of water, you know. Uh, so anyway, and then, and then of course, you, you shift your focus to the, um, uh, the mega churches where they have the Starbucks and the reclining chairs and uh it's more like a ted talk you know than it is really a a, a service of worship and uh, everything is done to make people comfortable it's the whole thing's meant to be entertaining nothing should challenge you and um there's an attitude that's crept into this in in, in the western right uh you know of the church and i would I, I can't speak for the for the eastern rites but i can say that an awful lot of people kind of come to the liturgy with this sort of attitude hey man I'm here. Peel me a grape. You know, um, this thing needs to be comfortable. The air conditioning needs to be working. Why aren't these pews padded? But more than that, everything needs to be intelligible and understandable. It has to be relevant to me. You know, all these kinds of things. It's very self-centered, anthropocentric. It's all about the human person and all of us, the aware, gathered community celebrating ourselves. And uh, we forget that the chief reason that we go to the sacred liturgy on Sundays is because to, to worship God, because God is worthy of our praise. God, we owe God injustice, worship, and gratitude, and thanksgiving. And uh, we should, there is, it is called the sacrifice of the mass um, for, uh, for a reason. Uh, now, of course, is Jesus once for all perfect sacrifice, but as you know, as St. Paul teaches us, we all have a little portion of that that's part of uh, part of what we're asked to carry. So I, I'll simply say that I, I think that that's how the conversation kind of got started. Uh, and it's not a bad place to start with the liturgy. Of course, we want to go broader than that. But maybe the first place you think about asceticism isn't immediately the liturgy. But it ought to be because it's the pinnacle of our life. Now, add to this that in the Western rite of the church, we have all but set aside any real fasting, uh, any real abstaining of any kind. I'm talking about 
particularly the Western or Roman right. I think some of the Eastern rites are better than we are. But I mean, my gosh, you know, some of us are old enough to remember when you'd fast from midnight. And then maybe somewhere in the 50s, uh, one of the uh, Pope, I think it was Pius XII, reduced that to uh, just three hours before mass, you know. Um, and uh, and then now, you know, it's down to like an hour before receiving communion. And you're like, well, gosh, if I just get in the car and drive 15 minutes and walk into the church, you know, I'm covered. And then uh, the food, we, we call what we do on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday a fast. I mean, that's really stretching the meaning of the term. Again, I'm here speaking of the Roman Rite, but I mean, for heaven's sakes, one full meal and two smaller meals? That sounds like a weight, I don't know, it just it sounds like a lot of people do that for Weight Watchers, you know? I mean, it's, just, it's hardly, a, it, calling it a fast is a really an, almost an embarrassment. Um, and further, you know, we it's only really those two days where we're asked to fast and abstain. And it, whereas in the, it used to be in the past that we were asked to abstain on Fridays from meat, I know we're still supposed to do something, but as you know, if something isn't clear and has a pretty clear metric, it's very hard for people to get their mind around it and, and engage in a discipline like that. Not that you shouldn't, but I think, you know, who will follow an uncertain trumpet? The trumpeter sounds an uncertain call. Who will muster for battle, says St. Paul, right? And so it's kind of this very vague thing. And there's just this sort of attitude among the clergy and bishops that we don't want to ask too much of God's people. We'll certainly ask them for the appeal every year and ask them to be generous in the collection. But I mean, imagine asking them to, you know, turn up for holy days. Oh, we have to reduce those. They have to be convenient. My God, if it occurs on a Saturday or a Monday, I mean, that's just asking too much to come to church like two days in a row. I mean, that's just not, oh, that's too much. See, And so there's this attitude that, calling for sacrifices and saying, look, God is worthy of these things. And by God, you will show up for these things. You know, in the Old Testament, these are the feasts and you will come to these feasts. There's no argument about that. You're going to come, you know, and uh, this this sort of uh, in, in unwillingness, even inability to insist that there should be something sacrificial about every mass, as well as just the whole idea that worshiping God is is a sacrifice. We lose something. We give something away. Um, and thanks be to God, God returns us far more. You know, that's the way it works with God. He will never be outdone in generosity. I'll just tell you a funny story, and I'll get into the kind of framework I just gave you about some definitions. But when I was a young, uh, a young uh, parochial vicar, probably two years ordained, there was a school there at the parish, and you know, every year for the first mass or whatever, the kids would bring up stuff in the offertory procession, like a globe and a book and a basketball and, you know, things like this. They bring them up in the offertory procession. So anyway, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to have to teach him something here. So at, come the end of mass, I quickly ordered the uh, altar boys to put the globe and the basketball and the book, you know, a couple of these textbooks and things aside. Um, and uh, so anyway, the, 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 a couple of the students and teachers came. Well, Father, we come to get the basketball and the globe. I said, oh, no, <laughs> you gave that to God. That's gone. <laughs> you know, you, you know, you, you can't have it back. I mean, you brought it up in the offertory procession. You know, I mean, offertory means sacrifice. You give away something. You waste it. And and so I I, la- I, I, I kind of played played, you know, kind of a rough guy for a little bit. Then I started laughing. I said, okay, you can have them back, but don't bring those things up on the offertory procession. That is not what we're here for, to just sort of celebrate ourselves and put stuff on the offertory that we want back. 
that's not a sacrifice. Okay, so you see the vision. Uh, but there's a lot of misunderstanding about this today because there's very little sense of asceticism. Basically, God wants me to be comfortable, doesn't he? God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? You know, so I should be able to divorce my wife if I'm unhappy, right? You know, I shouldn't have to stick it out and work through my differences. Uh, uh, oh, that's that's asking too much. And, you know, you see the idea how all this trends into other areas that the notion that God might actually ask us to do something that's hard and difficult is sort of lost on us today. Oh, that's not the God I know. Mm. Well, the make the make believe Jesus, the make believe God, it can't save you. Only the real one can. And he knows us well enough to know that we need a little bit of sacrifice in our life and uh, maybe more than just a little bit. Um, so with all that in mind, um, let's get, I just wanted to frame up the talk a little bit for you. Um, and we also had a nice podcast, I guess, Annie, you, you, if you haven't already, you'll give them some links to that. But uh, we were, Father and I and, and Annie were talking about this topic um, and we developed a little more of the liturgical stuff. But let's let's answer the let's start. The first part of that is, is what? Uh, so what is asceticism? And also, what is a, we could say moderation? Hmm? They, they're, they're related, but they are different, significantly so. So first of all, what is asceticism? Well, it's originally from a Greek term, which means to train or to exercise. And so it has a kind of an athletic context. You know, this is something that athletes do. They train. They, they discipline their body. Um, they, they, they get up early, they train, whether lifting weights or running or practicing their skills. Uh, they're careful about what they eat. Um, they, uh, you know, they, they stretch, they stay in good health, you know, all the things that are necessary for a great athlete to be a great athlete. And there's a discipline an ascetic or an, un, I mean, uh, yeah, an ascetical quality to this, that, um, it requires many great sacrifices and, um, uh, getting up early and so on. So we take this concept into the um, religious setting, and basically um, abstinence or asceticism is to limit either by abstinence or moderation, usually for religious reasons. So if we work hard and train our bodies to run a marathon or um, look good for the beach, or uh, if we if we train and uh, pummel our bodies, you know, because we have some talent and we could be the best in the in the sport, if we're willing to do it for our bodies that will, you know, molder in a grave one day, how much more so our souls? You know, we we seem to care far less about our soul than we do about our bodies. And I just bring out COVID one more time, you know, COVID-19. Everyone's running for the hills. Oh, my God, I might get sick and I might even possibly die. Yeah. And I, I'm not even here to comment on that about the COVID, but to say would that we had even a scintilla of that attitude toward our souls and worrying about mortal sin rather than just mortality of the body. Um, we don't seem to really care. We'll look at anything, listen to anything. We just go on and we don't think anything's really necessary. And, and again, I'm saying this in a very broad, many of you are above average, right? Cause you're, you're listening to me, no. <laughs> but you're, you're here seeking God, but you see the idea, this is our human tendency, you know, Oh my gosh, I might not have something to eat. You know, I better run around and get something. You know, oh my gosh, I might miss mass. Well, we'll let that go. Okay. So asceticism is where we try to take some of these disciplines that we know about the body in which many people are more than willing to engage in going to the gym and getting all buff and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, we take that mentality and try to bring it into our spiritual life and begin to discipline our soul as well as our body and to kind of reverse what happened in original sin. One of the preternatural gifts that Adam and Eve had before sin was that reason was in, in authority. Um, but with original sin, that, that, that thing was dropped and the passions rose to the fore. And so uh, emotions, uh, passions, uh, or desires, if you will, began to rule the day. And uh, so what asceticism tries to do is to address that and to say to the body, no, or to, to other types of desires, no, no, uh, you're not that important. Um, other things are more important, and I'm going to run this thing based on what is correct and reasonable and right and true and good, not just on what I'm craving right now, okay? And as you may know, sadly, our whole culture has sort of pivoted mm -hmm. to a culture that was rooted in some, to some degree in reason to now it's almost all about emotion. Hey, that's how I feel, man. I feel like I'm a male trapped in a female body. I feel this. I feel that. You hurt my feelings. Well, look, she's crying. It must be true. You know, this kind of stuff. We're very, everything's upside down. So asceticism tries to get things back in, in the order they're supposed to be, that reason is in control. Uh, not desires, passions, emotions, okay? Now, the the original, you know, ascetics uh, would, would have emphasized things like, you know, uh, minimizing drink, certainly uh, spirited drinks, alcoholic drinks, but also um, food and, and, uh, and, and very often would be either celibate or would go through periods of abstinence from sexual union and so on. But of course, but of course in the wider sense, though, the ascetics, quote, left the world, you know, these desert fathers and mothers who would go out and live in the desert because the cities were so corrupting um, and so on. So they would leave the world and go and live in the desert and mortify their desires, put to death these passions of the body, or at least minimize their authority and live very simply and humbly. So it wasn't just about food or, or drink or sex, but it was also about just a whole life of discipline and the goal wasn't just the discipline, but it made them more available to God. There's something about fasting that we know there's a connection that when we're fasting um, properly, uh, we're more open to God and to prayer. And, uh, you know, you don't put some food in that hole in your face all day long and suddenly you start to feel a little vulnerable and say, you know, I, I need God, you know, and it just sort of begins to set your mind a little clearer. It is true that some people struggle with being more grouchy or more sinful. We'll look at that later. But the real goal isn't just I'm going to fast to fast or I'm going to fast to lose weight or I'm going to fast just because I like think discipline's a good thing. You know, OK, any pagan could talk like that. But we're fasting or be engaging in an ascetical life or practice in order that we can be more available to God. So I'm going to spend less money and time on food and drink and other foolish diversions. Or, and those aren't foolish, but you see the idea. I'm going to limit all these things so that I have more money and more time and more energy for God and the things of God and things that are higher rather than the things of earth. And this is the main purpose of asceticism. It isn't just to be ascetical, uh, but it, it is to be available to God. There's an old gospel song. It has a kind of strange set of words, but we sing it here often. Lord, my, uh, I'm available to you. My storage is empty and I'm available to you. So we kind of clear the clutter and we live a simpler life, a life that is less re related to food and other passions 
um, other other desires and is 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 more available uh, to God. Okay. Now we also know that for us, asceticism has to also include our lifestyle, which is so hurried, so busy, so easily interrupted, filled with diversions, and so on. So for anyone, this idea of leaving the world, you see, is it must be emphasized. It's not just about food and drink um, or those types of things, but it is about getting free from all the interruptions, the running around. You know, we're all in a big hurry. We have no idea where we're going, but we're sure in a hurry to get there. And so we have <laughs> these these things to get free of and asceticism seeks to quote leave the world um to enter into a kind of a silence or at least more more silence there was an old story one of the rabbi or the desert fathers i said not the rabbis but one of the old desert fathers maybe it was abba moses i don't know but anyway people were coming and going in great numbers coming out to see the desert fathers and this was bothering some of the monks and so they but they noticed that Abba Moses was always at peace, whether there was a lot of noise or things were quiet. And he said to them, well, silence is not the absence of sound. It's the absence of self. We were very, see, one of the biggest things that we're overly attached to is just our very self. What's your biggest distraction in life? It's yourself. <laughs> well, I got to have this. I got to do that. I got I, 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 and, and, and we were very inwardly focused. Now, this isn't some weird Buddhist Zen, you know, we're not talking that kind of absence of self, but at least that we're less obsessed with whether I'm comfortable, huh? uh, whether I'm not hungry, whether I'm, I'm feeling good, whether I'm, you know, I, and we're more outwardly, you know, so St. Augustine says we're in Kervatas and say we're turned in on ourselves. And so what God wants to do is to turn us out. And a little bit of the uh, asceticism can help in that regard. OK, now let's move on to a little bit about what is moderation. Because you notice the title has not just asceticism, but uh, moderation. Now, moderation has something similar. We, uh, the avoidance of excess um, or extremes, right? Um, it is, in that sense, it, it, there, there is an avoidance or something. But I would argue that moderation is a very under-celebrated virtue. And it's more necessary than asceticism. Uh, we can only be so ascetical depending on our state in life. You can't just leave your kids and family and work and just go out and live in the desert. You could physically, but that wouldn't mean that's what God is asking you to do. So you can only be so ascetical. Um, but the real key that for most people on a daily basis is to learn moderation. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but it's actually easier in a certain sense to abstain from things than it is to moderate their use. You know, talk to any alcoholic, right? You know, they're not going to just have one drink, you know. Um, it's going to continue and grow. And you know, so the best thing for them is just to abstain. I, I, I won't get too specific, but I'll say that in a certain sense, I talk to married men and women. And sometimes the issue of their, their marital experiences with sexuality comes up. And um, um, I, I realize that um, they say it must be really hard to be celibate. I said, actually, it isn't, <laughs> you know. I, I, I've been I've been successful at it. I'm 32, 33 years a priest, whatever. And, and I've never been out of line with anybody, not even once as God is my witness. Now, I shouldn't have to say that, but I want to tell you that, you know, it's, it's, we, we clergy are pretty dubious to you all these days by, uh, you know, the, the terrible things you, you, you've heard about some of us. But I have never had a real problem with celibacy. 
I'm not looking at porn. I don't have those things. It's just not a big part of my life. No, I'm not boasting. I'm just saying, thank you, Lord, you gave that to me. But I will say that it, it would be a lot harder for me to be celibate or to abstain from sex when necessary if I had a beautiful woman lying in the bed next to me. That's a lot harder than just living in my own room, staying alone. I sleep alone and, you know, I follow the proper boundaries. It's, in some sense, it's a lot harder for married couples to negotiate this and learn to moderate it so that they respect each other and the limits, but also are generous with each other. It's a tough thing to get right. Okay. So moderation is in some sense, even more difficult than just simply ascetical abstaining, you know, from things, um, you know, so for example, if Ash Wednesday or good Friday, you know, for heaven's sake, just, just, I'm just not gonna, it's just so silly. This two meals, two small meals. One, I just, just, just abstain. It's easier. It's just easier, you know, so a little bread and water and we're done. Okay. Uh, now that's just me talking. I'm just saying to you though, that you, you, you will find that we, we, we talk, we've talked about abstaining and asceticism, I think more than we talk about moderation. We know that we should have moderation, but it isn't something that we emphasize a lot. And, you know, in a way, moderation is a beautiful thing because it acknowledges that all the desires and passions are fundamentally good. They come from God. They're, some of them are absolutely necessary for our survival. Um, a nice meal is a good thing. It's a blessing. A nice glass of wine is a blessing. That's what scripture says. See? Um, but the key to enjoying it is moderation. You know, you and I know what happens on if we eat too much. We're like, oh, why did I do that? Uh, you know, or, uh, you know, you've had too much to drink and you're like, man, what a mess. So God's gifts are best enjoyed in moderation. Um, 99% of the time, you know, there's an old saying, all things in moderation, including moderation. <laughs> there is a time to just, you know, feast, if you will. Um, but again, because we almost never fast, we never really appreciate the, the beauty of a nice meal or a nice glass of wine or, you know, uh, something that we've given up that we can now return to. So, again, you see the vision here that we have to, um, I think, rediscover and more emphasize, I think, moderation. So just some other defining of moderation is the avoidance of excess or extremes. Paradoxically, in some sense, it's a lessening of rigor. Um, or severity. Sometimes, you know, we can get very pietistic and wag our finger at people, and suddenly we, we become like a Puritan, you know. Ooh, um, and I, you know, he's having a glass of wine, and he's a priest. What's he doing, you know? I, I say to them, well, Jesus made a lot of it. Jesus was known as a, a wine bibber. <laughs> he said, he said, remember that one, one line? He says, you know, John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking. He said he's mad. And I come eating and drinking, and you say I'm a glutton and a drunkard. <laughs> but time will prove where wisdom lies, huh? Uh, you know, so somewhere to find this moderateness is a key for us. And sometimes that means relaxing a little of the rigor uh, and learning to just enjoy a few things. You know, one of the things I most hate, and I often go out with groups like from the parish, you know, and everybody's talking about, oh, you shouldn't eat that. That has too much salt. Do this and that. I, 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 I ding the glass. And I say, no food shaming at this table. Everyone enjoy your meal. Silence on that topic. Because you know how it is. Oh, I read this. And you should try this. And you, you know, all this kind of stuff. And you're like, mm. and meanwhile, I'm waiting for my steak to arrive. All right. Now, so again, we can become very picky and sort of accusatory of, of other people. Um, and uh, that can happen, too. So moderation is this way of saying there's a time and a place 
uh, to, to have a nice meal. And then there's a time and a place to be more careful uh, and so on. So moderation um, means governance. It's, it refers to temperance, mitigating or restraining um, certain desires. Um, to mitigate means to make less uh, difficult, right? And then likewise, um, it means to restrain or maybe to set a measure. Here's what I can reasonably eat or here's what I can reasonably have for a drink and no more. Uh, knowing my limits, you know, here's the amount of time I should spend uh, on Facebook each day. Uh, you know, so it isn't just about food and drink all the time, right? Okay. So um, it, fundamentally, we want to m- moderate. Now, the word moderate is interesting. It it seems to come from the uh, from the word that we get mode. You know, remember remember in math, mode is is not really the mean or the middle number in a, in a line of numbers. But it's the mode is the most common number. It's the one that that occurs most frequently. So it's a little bit like the middle ground, but the mode is is what's most common and acceptable. We get the word modesty, in other words, modesty from this word too, right? So we set limits to how much clothing we wear or don't wear, and we 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 observe certain you know modes, namely uh, what what's acceptable um, and and proper um, given who we are and the and there are some cultural differences here and there, but fundamentally, we follow the mode, uh, that middle section where the, the numbers are most uh, frequently repeated, okay? Um, now, so I've, I've talked about uh, moderation as well as asceticism. Uh, we might think of the word abstaining or moderating. So in Lent, I have often taken to encouraging my parishioners Maybe you could pick something that you're either going to abstain from, or somebody said in the pre-conversation before the for, before we formally began, maybe take up something, do something rather than just give up something. You could do that. But I often say to them, but is there some area in your life that you don't necessarily give up or want to give up, but you can moderate it? No, we're not talking about anything that's illicit. This is these are lawful pleasures, but they need to be a little more moderated. Um, have you thought about maybe trying to work with learning to moderate during Lent too, you see? And if you try to moderate everything all at once, your head will explode. But maybe pick one area, like how much TV or how much Facebook or how much alcohol you drink or, you know, something to that effect where you're going to say, I'm going to really work on this and learn to moderate. I'm going to set a limit for myself. And by gosh, I'm going to try, I'm going to work my hardest to keep to it, see? So I think moderation needs to be more discussed and and encouraged than it is today all right <laughs> even in in in, uh, in in the liturgy uh my, my liturgy teacher father quinn uh had a, a lot of a lot of opinions about a lot of things in the liturgy and uh, he spoke like john houseman he spoke like this he says now my brothers when the hymn the opening hymn at mass has three verses sing three verses if it has 15 verses Sing three verses. <laughs> you know, so I mean, again, moderation, you see. Now, some hymns are lengthy because they have a whole theology. That's a different matter. But you see the vision. Usually, you know, brevity in the liturgy can have its place, as well as extended uh, litanies and things as well. So we learn to moderate in life, all right? So that's the what of this talk. Um, I want to move now, though, into uh, so what. Why is being ascetical or abstaining 
and moderate and learning moderation so important for us? Why bother? And, and I've already given you some insights that most people know by experience, namely that um, there is when we learn to abstain and fast, that we, we somehow become more available to God. We feel a little more vulnerable. We, uh, we experience uh, the loss of certain things. Um, this makes us more available to God. It also gives us a little bit of wisdom. It reminds us that this world is passing away. It helps to prepare us for death. It, uh, it does a lot of things to keep us from becoming too proud or, uh, and so on. So we see that there is a lot to be said for how it helps us spiritually but I'd also want to maybe approach it a little bit from the via negativa here a little bit. We are in a very comfort-based culture. And what's that done to us? You know, well, think about it before I even talk about the comfort-based culture that we have. Go back just 120 years ago to some of the years about 19, 1900. I mean, you think of all the things they didn't have that we do. Air conditioning, modern medicine, so many different things like... Um, um, you know, the way they had to work, you know, 10, they worked six days a week, 10 hours a day, most of them. Uh, they worked in horrible places like coal mines and, and uh, uh, you know, these sweatshops, these uh, big factories. And um, it was hard, tough work. And life was a lot more brutal and short than it is today. And people wrote songs like um, the Hail Holy Queen, you know, Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, our hope. Today did we cry? Poor banished children of Eve, we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. They understood that this world is a place of testing and of pain, and that they also developed a kind of a longing for heaven and the glory and the beauty and the joy of what heaven would one day be. And uh, they, 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 on the Protestant side, they'd write songs like, you know, one bright morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away. To a home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. Oh, when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. So we, we approach our death with a sort of a sober, you know, reverence, but we're not overwhelmed by it because it's deliverance from a world that is difficult and often painful. But what we've done in more recent years is we've developed through technology, medicine and other things, a, a very comfort based culture. Um, air conditioning, modern medicine. You know, in the old days, your knee went bad and the doctor said, too bad for you. He threw you a cane and said, no more tennis, man. You're done. You know, and you walked away, you know, you hobbled away. Now, you I need a knee replacement. Let's go get it done. And someone else will pay for it, you know. Um, or, and so, again, you know, and there's nothing wrong with modern medicine. But I mean, the idea is that, again, the idea that we should ever have to suffer the effects of age and so on. Well, I don't want to talk about that blue pill. But it's normal for a man and a woman to, you know, in terms of their, their sexual life, that their bodies change over the length of their life. Why do I have to, you know, have the prowess of a 20-year-old man when I'm 60 or 70? But uh, we do. <clears throat> Someone needs to pay for this. And I mean, I'm, I'm being a little edgy there, but you see the idea. We insist on comfort. Uh, we insist on things being quick. Same-day delivery with Amazon. Um Immediate instant download from the computer. Uh, no, no, no need to wait. Can't wait. Won't wait. Uh, and if anything goes wrong, like, you know, an airplane flight all the way to, I don't know, uh, you're going to fly all the way over to Europe and the thing starts, took off an hour late. Well, do you know how long it used to take to get to Europe? You know, hour late. 
And we're all oh, this is a stupid thing. It was an hour late, and they made us wait and whiny. We're very quickly. So what happens with our comfort culture is look what it does to us spiritually. It bloats us. Literally, obesity is one of the biggest health issues, not COVID. Uh, it, 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 it's uh, We have all these issues related to that, but on top of all the stuff that goes with it, heart disease, all that stuff. But more than that, we're just in, in all the indulgence, we find that we're, we become weak-willed. We can't take setback. We're quickly resentful. Well, this thing isn't working right. I mean, what's this world coming to? You know, my mouse isn't working right. What is... Who, why is this? Who do I need to sue? And meanwhile, there's a, a lady over in, in Sudan whose husband just got killed, and she's got one potato, and she has four kids, and that's what they got for the day. And we're worried about a stupid mouse, but this is what happens to us. We complain, we're resentful, we're quickly crestfallen, we're like the princess and the pea. Remember that? You know, she this little pea, and oh, it's, it's, it's hurting me. Another mattress, another mattress. You know, she just, it, nothing was ever enough. You could not solve her problem because the problem was inside, not outside. And we're very dainty. We're very averse to anything that sets us back. We become quickly resentful. We're easily restless and quickly bored. I mean, God bless you all. You listen to a loudmouth like me all this time. But, you know, for most of us, especially our young people today, are trained for eight-second intervals. You know, every, every if you're watching TV, every eight seconds, the picture has to shift. That's just a rule. For anyone who does broadcasting, they know that rule. You've always got to be shifting the angle and doing different things. And likewise, again, you know, everything has to be short and brief and to the point, soundbite length, and everything is quick, rapid. And that just wears you out. And then when you just have a normal conversation with somebody, you're like, bored. And you know it. You see it in your grandkids and so on. All the families gathered. We're all sharing stories. And they're just lost in this device that flickers because we are utterly boring to them. But they need rapid eye movement, all this kind of stuff that's going on. And so these things, you know, again, they bloat our spirit. They make us easily bored. We become easily addicted to these things. We're resentful. We're restless. We're bored. As I said earlier, we're weak. We're sick. We're ill. And here's the other thing. We're hypersensitive. Oh, now these kids, remember, you know, and we've, we've talked about this before, and it's certainly I'm not the first one to make this observation. You think about D-Day. And think of those 18-year-olds who took to that beach on Normandy and went up that hill facing almost certain death. And then these kids on the college campuses need safe zones because their little feelings might be hurt by triggering speech. And you know, what has happened to us? What has happened? I mean, there's going to be discomfort when somebody doesn't agree with you. Get used to it. Um, you're going to find that people don't always agree with you. And you're not, you're going to sometimes find you aren't even always right. But, oh, I can't stand that. And that's wrong. And, and now the other, the latest thing, you know, that we're going into is uh, you've heard of this equity stuff, which is different than we, we, back in the civil rights year, there was this idea of equality of opportunity. And I think most of us can and should sign on to that. But what, what they're after now with this equity thing is equality of outcome. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody has to get an A or the thing is racist or it's it's uh, slanted to this or that, you know, culture, you know, everybody has to get an A. Everybody has to uh, succeed. Every That's just not the way life works. I don't have all the gifts. I'm, I would never succeed at basketball. I would never succeed at at, um, you know, art drawing. I, it's just not one of my gifts.
Okay. Just the way it is. But you see, we're very quickly uncomfortable about anything that makes anybody possibly, even potentially, uncomfortable. And so we start to get hypersensitive. We feel entitled. Uh, we were very sensual, you know, um, hostile. We're very quickly hostile if something doesn't work or someone delays us or something gets in our way. And uh, we become very also then here's the biggest, I think, spiritual problem, though. We become very earthly and very little heavenly minded. And even in our so-called spiritual life, you know, I, I've been in communities most of my life where people are used to praying out loud. And so, you know, even in our so-called spiritual life, it's more often than not, we're asking something to make this world more pleasant. Lord, fix my finances, fix my health, fix my spouse. You know, in other words, make this world more pleasant for me. But when do we ever pray, Lord, fix me, get me ready for heaven. And if testing and trials need to be part of it, I understand that, Lord. I will, um, I will endure those things. But above all, Lord, I want you to do whatever it takes to get me ready to see you because I want to spend my eternity with you. People don't pray like that today. There's almost, almost never do, is heaven mentioned in most settings. How many sermons have you heard? Someone said to me, no sermons on hell anymore, Father. I said, yeah, you're right. No sermons on heaven either. It's mostly about five steps to better marriage. You're fine. Okay. Nothing wrong with it, but if that's all you get, I mean, our goal is not to stay here forever. And this is a difficult and a hard place for us. And so we have to learn that through asceticism and moderation, that we just can't have everything we want all the time when we want it and the color we want and the variety and, 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 and the number. It's just sometimes life is going to have its challenges. But without any sense of asceticism, uh, or moderation in our life, we just start to feel very entitled and become very earthly. And basically, we just say, Lord, if you just make this life pleasant enough, give me enough money, enough friends, enough good health, I'll just stay here forever. What? And then all this, you know, you know, when somebody's died, you know, we're, we should we all have a right to feel sorrow. But honestly, if you're if you're faithful, the day you die is the greatest day of your life because you get to leave this lunatic asylum. And go to a place where things make sense, even if through purgatory. See, thank you, Lord, at least I'm in the vestibule, you know? At least I'm in the, the narthex. Uh, I'm, I'm sure to get in soon enough. But but you see the idea, we don't talk like that. Everything's just, you know, you know. And then when we ever do talk about heaven, it's in just kind of a blithe way. Well, I'm sure Joe's up there playing poker with Jesus right now. You're like, oh, really? Really? You know, is that what you think heaven is like, you know? And so, and, you know, by the way, I think, um, um, Annie, I may have already done some series on whether it's a series or just a talk on heaven, but I tell you, man, we gotta, I gotta maybe make that offer, you know, to, at some point, let's, let's, let's meditate on heaven. You know, I have not seen ears, never heard, but that doesn't mean we got no resources. We know a lot about heaven, what heaven ought to be like, you know, because we have been us an infinite longing. See? And a finite world cannot satisfy. Now, so moderation and asceticism help stem some of this stuff. But otherwise, we have exactly what we have today. An entitled, peevish, just nasty little culture where people are like all into themselves. And they, you made me wait. And this was late. And then who wanted, I need to talk to your supervisor. And, and everyone becomes hostile and nasty and, and uh, very, very picky. And this is where we end up, you see. Now, you've heard my five hard truths that will set you free if you've been listening long here at the ICC, and I recognize a lot of you. I know we always have some new folks. 
thank be a God. Um, but, you know, we just have to get hold of ourselves and remember five hard truths that will set us free. And I'm not going to give the full talk here. I'm going to pretty much just list them. But look, number one, life is hard. It's hard. There are difficulties. Life is messy. It's hard. It can be very difficult at times. There's also many good things in life, but life can be very hard. Number two. See, now that's a hard truth, by the way. I'm just trying to show you. We don't like it, but it's a hard truth. But some, there's something freeing when we just accept that's the way things are. We're living in paradise lost. All right. Number, number one is life is hard. Number two, your life isn't just about you and what you want. God has other people in mind. You're part of a bigger plan. God has things in mind for you uh, and how you're going to contribute to it that uh, may not immediately be obvious to you. So it's not just about you and what you want and, you know, little. OK, so and number three is related to it. You're not that important. Whoa. Did he just say that? I mean, I don't know. I think maybe I've been triggered. I need a safe zone. I need a safe zone now. Uh, he said, I'm not that important. I thought I was God's little girl, God's little boy. I thought I was daddy's little girl, you know, and, you know, you know, you see, you're not that important. Sometimes people or other people and their needs are more important than yours right now. That's why we send soldiers to war or police and other people put themselves in danger. See, because again, there are just going to be times when people, because of needs and other things, their, their, their needs are more urgent and more important. And it's not, everything is not about you. And you're not that important. You're important, but you're not that important. Number four, you're not in control. You're not in control. You know, I have all my plans laid up for tomorrow. I mean, what are you talking about, Father? I, mean, I got everything under control. Well, that's, yeah, I can't promise you the next beat of your heart. And all those plans tomorrow depend on not just the next beat, but the one after that, too, and going on down through the evening. All right? Are you praying with me? So the control is something of an illusion. And then finally, you're going to die. That's hard Hard truth number five. Okay, so life is hard. Okay, you're not that important. Your life isn't just about you. Uh, you're not in control and you're going to die. Now, there's something strangely freeing. This is a kind of a spiritual ascetic, that, or, you know, asceticism that says there's just going to be some limits I have to observe in this life. I cannot expect for a finite world to resolve my infinite longing. I've got to turn to God. And realize that the world just can't cut the deal. I absolutely need God. And that's where I've got to go more and more. And one of the ways that we get there, y'all, is by mortifying, dying to this world so that we can live for a higher world. Okay? And um, it's just no other way around it. There's, you know, people want to set up any kind of alternate spiritualities. But, you know, the church has been praying, well, for a long time now, and we've learned some things and all this stuff about, you know, you're that you're important. God said, take up your pillow and follow me. Oh, wait a minute. He didn't say that. He said, oh, the cross, you know, now I want the styrofoam model with a little red velvet cushion and a turning wheel at the bottom. OK, I got to carry cross. All right. Uh, all right. But again, you see the idea. We, 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 we easily lose our way and we become all these, you know, really nasty little buggers that we can become if we don't have some sense of being ascetical and moderate in our life, all right? So somehow we have to limit then the influences and the excesses of worldliness. Now, then we want to just come as I go to this last part of the talk, 
so asceticism, you can see, is, is very important for us. I kind of use the negative way by showing what happens to us if we don't exercise this both individually and communally. And by the way, just one other thought on this communal. We used to be better about this in the church. I'm talking about the Roman right now. I think some of the Eastern rites still have this better. But I'm telling you, we used to do things together. Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, Fridays during the year. Um, we also had ember days. I don't know if any of you remember those. There were certain Wednesdays, usually around the change of the season, where there was a day of fast called for. There were also feast days, and we followed the schedule, the cycle. Uh, Advent was much more penitential than it is today. People often gave up things for Advent, just like they did for Lent, and Lent itself, and so on. And, you know, it's amazing to me, those people did not have the diets that we have today. And yet they would go without any animal products or meat for like 40 days, some of them even longer, they would start like an in quinquagesima, the 50 days before, or sexagesima, or even, you know, a septuagesima, 70 days out. They're doing some fasting and they're doing these things. And my gosh, you know, we just had a burger and we can't go without meat. You know, really? I mean, it's amazing to me. I don't know how they stayed healthy, frankly, but they did. Um, isn't it interesting that the more food we have available, the less easy it is for us to fast? You'd think the opposite. Oh, I'm so full. I have so much. I could go for days without eating. Um, it's not the way it works. It's, isn't it interesting that in, in, in at times when food was less available, there were seasonal aspects to food that there isn't today. You can get strawberries all year long if you want, you know? Um, yet we, we seem incapable. But there was that communal dimension that helped. And, you know, our bishops are often running around, I think, solving things that are less essential. I sure do wish they'd spend a little more time maybe looking at things like this that that really united us as a people and um, could get us back kind of on track with some of this stuff. But anyway, uh, unfortunately, the political agenda tends to drive what they're talking about, just like a lot of the rest of us. And don't tell me that's not true for a lot of you, too. You know, don't tell me you haven't been talking about Afghanistan for the last couple of weeks. You know, I mean, not that we shouldn't, but you see what I'm saying? We, we easily get carried away with the world's priorities and agendas. And we kind of lose sight of the bigger picture. Okay, now, now what? So what is what is moderation? What is fasting? Uh, you know, what is uh, you know asceticism? All right. So what? Why? Why do we? Why, why bother? Why is this so important? Right. I tried to show you by a negative example what happens if we don't do it. Um, now what? Well, engage the battle. You know. Now again, here too, be judicious. If you try to do too much all at once, you're going to probably fail. But there may be certain things in your life right now that, you know, I need to moderate that. Or something, you know, look, I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not able to moderate that. Um, it just needs to go. I'll give you an example. In my life, it's peanut butter, Pringles, potato chips, Oreo cookies. I don't keep that stuff in my house. I can't even tell you the last time I ate an Oreo cookie. You know, the last time I ate peanut butter, that might be more. But I mean, only because it was on some other, you know, aspect of a menu, but I'm going to tell you right now, I don't, I don't eat chocolate. Uh, I just can't have this stuff in my house. I don't keep it around. I don't eat it. I cannot moderate it. So if I have one little chocolate, I need to have the whole chocolate bar. If I have one little Pringle potato chip, the whole can has to go. Um, you know, so I, I, I just know there are certain things. They just got to go other things I can moderate. Okay. And so you need to do the same thing that I I'm trying to do here which is what are some things in my life? And maybe just pick one area to moderate. And you may know there's one area I just need to just remove that from my house, okay? And you decide. Um, 
and uh, pick your battle carefully. Try to win some, try to find some of the lower hanging fruit, so to speak. It's a battle you can reasonably win um, and engage the battle. Start there, you see. And we gave lots of examples, you know, at, at the pre-class. So I don't want to repeat them all and so on. But I, I do want to say engage the battle, um, abstain and moderate. But I want you also to be careful when you do these things, because you see the danger is that I, I want to kind of end with this idea of the danger, because I think we did a very good thing right before the class of coming up with lots of things, examples of moderation and abstinence and so on. But be careful about something. Um, it's very easy to fall into pride if you start engaging in fasting or moderation you know, every now and again, you met people like this. They got on board with something about 20 minutes ago in their life. And now everybody has to be on board. And what's your problem? Don't you understand? And I found this certain diet. And by God, everybody needs to be on this diet. And unless you do this thing or or how about, you know, I just met them. I'm in the neo-catechumen way or I'm in this or that. And by God, everybody needs to be on board or, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, you're hitting people and you're you're kind of, um, uh, you know, becoming kind of spiritually prideful if you're not careful. Now, um, let me um, give a couple quotes from scripture. You know, Jesus, as you know, well, this is actually from Isaiah. And you've used a text, you know, very well. Okay. You cry out to me, says the Lord, saying, we fasted, but you don't see. We've humbled ourselves, but you don't notice. But behold, on the day of your fast, you do whatever you please. You oppress your workers. You fast, but with contention and strife, you strike viciously with your fist. You, uh, you cannot fast as you do today and have your voice heard on high. That's not the kind of fast I want uh, for a man to deny himself and bow his head like a reed and spread out sackcloth and ashes. Do you call that a fast day acceptable to God? You know, given all the other negative things they're doing, right? He says, this is the fast I've chosen for you to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the cords of the yoke for the oppressed, to set the oppressed free and tear off their yokes. Isn't it to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and the homeless into your home, to clothe the naked when you see him? and not turn away from your own flesh and blood, you know? So again, you gotta be careful because some people think they can buy God off with just tokenary things like fasting or abstinence. Well, look, God, you gotta listen to me. I put, 20, I put 20 bucks in the collection plate. I go to mass on Sunday and I say the rosary. So now, hey, I've done what I need to do, deliver. Or, uh, you know, that's just, you know, you gotta be careful. Those are beautiful things. And so is fasting and abstaining. All these are beautiful things. But if you think you're going to buy God off, and he's after your heart, not your stomach, you know, okay, are you praying with me on that? I mean, you got to be really careful because there's a danger that we become sort of tokenary, thinking that we can, you know, buy God off with little things, and then I'm done with him. I don't have to look at other things in my life, like my anger, or my drinking, or my uh, my my lusting, or or my greed. See, I just... Uh, I put a few coins in the collection plate, go to mass on Sunday, and then I'm done with it. I don't, I, I'm a good person. I don't need to see. So be careful. Now, also, there comes this moment where some of the Pharisees and the scribes question Jesus about his disciples and so on. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And again, remember, they would fast twice a week. They would remember the two guys that went to pray. I fast twice a week. I'm not like this idiot over here. You know, and the other guy just bowed his head and said, have mercy on me, a sinner, you know. Uh, so there is this sort of pride, and, and Jesus responds to this here. He says, the, the scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to these traditions? 
Um, Jesus answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you, hypocrite, as is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Okay. So again, the Lord's after our heart. Finally, this, and this is, I think, what unlocks fasting and abstinence. Very key text. Hardly ever preached on, at least in the way I'm about to, and I don't claim credit for that. I was just a surprise when I heard it done. And then I've got to, we're coming up on the nine o'clock, so I got to bring this to a quick end. Jesus says uh, this, he says, um, uh, I'm sorry, John, the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees were often fasting. So the people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like those of John the Baptist or those of the Pharisees? And Jesus replied, how can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? As long as he is with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. Here's the question that unlocks fasting and, and abstinence and so on, and, uh, and moderation. Have you been to the wedding feast? Have you been to the wedding feast? What do you mean there, Father? What have I been to? Uh, I'm going to ask it one more time. Have you been to the wedding feast? Have you known the love of God for you? Have you experienced his grace, his magnificent mercy? Have you been just astonished at the goodness of the Lord? Have you sat before a, even a crucifix and just been amazed that he did that for me? Have you been so moved and you're just on fire with love and excitement and joy? Is your heart, your soul espoused to God? See, have you been to the wedding? And you see, if you have, then you will fast, you'll abstain, you'll moderate, but you won't get pride, prideful and judgmental and harsh and critical about other people that don't do it because you're doing it out of joy rather than out of some, I have to do this and everybody else needs to do it with me. And if they don't, they're bad Catholics and I'm the only good Catholic around. And you know, that you've not, if you're talking like that, you have not been to the wedding. Where the bridegroom of your soul, Jesus, has, has just shown you love. Where the heavenly father, our beautiful father, has just showered his love upon us. <gasps> you see? So again, you see the vision here, right? Uh, fast, abstain, moderate for all the reasons we talked about. But be careful because it can get very twisted, tokenary, and harsh, critical, and judgmental. We hit each other over the head with rosaries and I fast, but you don't cudgel like that. And that's not what this is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be done in joy and in a sense of love and appreciation for what God has done. And to know that fasting often unlocks prayer can make a real difference in people's lives because I love I fast. Okay. Not because I'm better than you. All right. I'll end there. Um, may, uh, may, may the Lord's wisdom uh, in these matters uh, uh, stay with all of us. Thank you so much, Monsignor Pope. I think there was something in that talk to challenge just about everyone participating in here. So, wow. I mean, and that that last part was so powerful. Thank you so much. What a what a beautiful talk tonight. We're blessed to be here with you. Monsignor Pope, you ready for some questions? Uh, let's start with this one from Anna. She says, uh, can you talk about how asceticism can help us build community through solidarity. Yeah, well, I think, think uh, in, in general, I, I tried to mention a little bit of that in the talk. We, we were much better about this as a church 50, 60, 70 years ago. We, um, we did these things together. They, they, these things were expected of us because we were a member of a community and we did things together. 
So I think of its very nature, just uh, the question I think is, is answered, um, namely that doing these things together builds fraternity, brotherhood. You know, men who go to war, you know, they build bonds that can never be broken. Um, you go through some of these difficulties or sacrifices or just any rites of passage together, you build a camaraderie that's hard. It's a mysterious, but a very, very deep camaraderie that sets up. And um, I think if we could uh, spend some time, you know, the uh, the conference, uh, you know, I'm not to say we, I'm not a bishop, but I mean, we, the church led by our bishops uh, could just spend some time uh, really rebuilding that. That'd be a lot of a lot of value added. A couple of people have written in asking for suggestions on how to get your family, in particular your children, on board with with more ascetical practices in the family. Well, again, I, I that would I mean almost redound more to those who are fathers and mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers here, but you could probably answer the question better than I. But I will say. That I think I think that what you want to do is sound enthusiastic. You want to talk about not just the personal benefits, but um, you know, uh, you, you know, a mother or a father talking to their children, saying, "Children, have you ever thought that Jesus says some things are only driven out by prayer and fasting? Why don't we really do a little bit of fasting for the world, and you know, just think of the difference we could make, and kind of encourage them? Especially, I know boys are usually up for a kind of a challenge. I, I don't know as much about the psychology of younger girls, but I, I know that um, if we emphasize, um, for example, I speak of, among guys, I wouldn't speak this way so much among women, but the, the rosary is a 50 round clip. Boom, boom, boom. You know, you're going after the evil one there. Uh, but I mean, trying to make it say, yeah, you know, it's like a weapon and we drive back the power of Satan. So that's just maybe one idea, but I'm sure others here would have other ideas uh, that are better than mine, but you want to make it positive and you're saying we're doing this for a good reason, not just for me, um, but for the whole world. Uh, Irene asks, um, do you have any words of wisdom on finding inspiration from the saints to not be discouraged by by modern mortification practices? You know, I wish one of my my deficits as a priest is I'm not a real good hagiographer. <laughs> um, I, I do know that saints are like all of us. They they had their ups and downs with it, too. Um, I think all I can say at this is just because I, I don't want to spend a long time answering a question. I can't think of like five examples of saints uh, very quickly. But I can I can say this, that if God could work in the lives of the saints uh, who were just as flesh and blood as you and I, um, he can certainly work in our lives, too. And um, so I, I think that's the best I can say about that right now. What about some advice on on finding joy amid these practices rather than than grief or disdain or, you know, just name your emotion? You know, I was an athlete, believe it or not. When I was a runner, um, I, I loved to uh, I, was, I was in many ways very self-motivated because I wanted to get out there and, OK, I'm going to run my personal best in the 10 mile this time, you know, and run a 10 mile race. I am do my personal best and, you know, and things like that. And I I got pretty good at it. And um, I, but I'm saying that there's a kind of an asceticism, obviously, in running and uh, getting out. I would run 10 miles a day in the summer, in the heat of the summer in Washington, D.C. Um, but I really, really wanted to to get ready for cross country and track. And I, I was motivated because it was uh, and there was a joy in that, you know. 
because I wanted to say, hey, um, I can do this. And so I think my best time in the mile was 430, four minutes and 30 seconds. Now, that's not superstar status, but it's competitive. And I, I became a letterman in track and got to wear the letter jacket and all that kind of stuff. But in other words, I, I found that as aesthetical as a lot of that stuff was, um, there was a joy in it because I was excited. I wanted to do my personal best. I wanted to see if I could do something and succeed at it. So if, if that helps, I think that you want to set a goal. Like I say, try for the low-hanging fruit that something's manageable you can reasonably do. Not, I'm going to give up gossip for all of Lent. Well, good luck. I mean, you know. But, you know, something realistic, you know, there's an old saying, you know, you know, the acronym SMART, specific, um, measurable, achievable, realistic and time based SMART, you know, find things like that. And instead of the goal and kind of have an excitement and a joy, can I make this goal? Can I do this thing? See, and that's I think, you know, how I would answer that question. Yeah. Georgie, I see you raising your hand. Go ahead. Take yourself off the mute. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Monsignor. This was wonderful, very inspiring. Earlier on, you were talking about the whole concept of equity. And I find in the business world, it's like everything is now all around DEI and everything. And it's become almost like a, a misdirected compassion. So it's, we just don't want anybody to suffer. So how? What? any suggestions on how do we address that? How do we speak into that? Yeah, there is, by the way, a good book on that topic by... Um... I'm looking across to my shelf, but there's a book written way, way back, late 80s, early 90s, called The Tragedy of American Compassion. And it, it shows, it's by George, um, uh, it's not Gilder. Anyway, I, I, I'll try to, uh, I'll, I'll get you, Annie, maybe the, the uh, but it's a very good book. It, it shows how in our, our do-goodism, we have really made a lot of people very dependent. Another thing, though, that I think a lot of people are unaware of is this so-called everybody wins a trophy, all that kind of stuff, is that this is a very deep form of envy. Now, envy, remember, is different than jealousy. Envy is sorrow or sadness at your excellence because it makes me look bad by comparison. And St. Augustine called envy the diabolical sin because it, if I'm jealous of you, I, you have something good I want. That's It could be sinful, but at least... I appreciate the good that you have. Whereas in envy, there's something good about you that I want to destroy. And so this torpedoes excellence, this torpedoes legitimate competition, which, which makes us great as a human family. Uh, we challenge each other. We say, you know, your personal best isn't as good as my personal best. Yeah, I don't know if you saw Sydney McLaughlin was one of the sprinters. She set the new world record in the 100 meter or was it 100 or 400 meter hurdles or something? Um, but she and her teammate were very close and they just, they just, but they really challenged each other. And how did Sydney make that? Because she had someone right on her heels and there's, there's a healthy competition. So, I mean, we are all robbed of excellence and gifts by this envious um, attitude that your excellence makes me look bad. And we got to get over that and see it for the diabolical thing that it is. Um, so, um, yeah, um, I could go on. I could be an entire class on its own. But I could just say that um, it's a very um, big problem today because, you know, gosh darn it, get out there and compete. And, you know, I don't have all the gifts and you don't have all the gifts, but together we have all the gifts. And I might not be any good at calculus, 
but I'm glad you are. See, so that way I can focus on what I'm good at, which is writing or, you know, speaking, you know. So, you know, you see the vision. We, we want to support and, and encourage and, yes, at times compete with each other Those are in, within healthy boundaries. You can become too competitive, but it, of itself, it's a good thing. And so I hope that helps. Teresa, I think I saw your hand raised. You do you have do you still have a question? Would you like to ask? I was I was thinking about kind of the conversation before class and then what you were sharing, Father. And I was um, wondering uh, about virtue, practicing virtue. Is that a type of asceticism? Is that a type of moderation? And like, is that is that maybe one of the ways that we can kind of bring joy into asceticism? Yeah, virtue is, is um, it certainly is um, a type of asceticism, um, and it can be a form of, of uh, moderation. Uh, that, that could vary, but as, uh, you know, for, virtue, of course, is, as you know, the definition of virtue is it's a good habit. Now, remember, when Thomas uses the word habit, he's not just simply talking about something we do repeatedly, but it, it becomes part of our character so that we do it not just repeatedly, but easily without a lot of effort. And that's what a habit does to us. It it becomes part of our whole character and and so on. So vices are obviously bad habits, right? But a virtue is a good habit. But building good habits is a um, is a great form of mortification because you got to get up every day and do it. You can't just dabble in it. You know, you're just going to like I, I tried to I learned to play the pipe organ, you know, and I, every day I had to go and sit there and play my scales and arpeggios and do all the footwork, heel toe, heel toe, you know, all that kind of crazy stuff. And now I can go over and play the organ without a whole lot of effort. Uh, I said, it's a joy in my life. I can't, I can't play the big Bach preludes and fugues, but I can just play the hymns and the things I needed to do as a, uh, as a church organist when I was a younger man. So I, it just, I don't know. Um, yeah, it, it is. Obviously that's asceticism, getting up every day and going to practice. Well, but the guys are playing, you know, pick up football game on the back lot, you know, well, I know, but I got to go do something else. And, um, so, yeah, there's an asceticism. Now, is it a moderation? Sometimes, obviously, I'm moderating. Let's just take that example. I was moderating my enjoyment of football, you know, in the backyard or something. But it might not always be moderation. Sometimes it's the opposite. It's all in, man. You know, um, like I say, all things in moderation, including moderation. There's just a time to be really emphasizing something and being wholly dedicated to it. That's uh, important, too. Inez, do you still want to ask your question? My question might sound a little weird. It's related to the five points that you gave us, Monsignor, uh, also to the part of suffering. And um, it's, it, my question is this. It, it's very common to hear, and I think that emotionally we all feel like that. Uh, I hope I go on my sleep. I hope that this person doesn't suffer. You know, that kind of comment. And emotionally, I totally understand the meaning of, but at the same time, you were talking about the value of suffering. Can you comment on, on that uh, from a more theological, spiritual perspective? You know, suffering is, uh, has a role in our life. Uh, obviously, it's something we'd like to avoid, and we should pray for God to deliver us from it. But if God permits it, then he's permitting it for some greater good. And so what might some of those greater goods be? Well, suffering can humble us. Uh, suffering can kind of push us to look at things differently and what maybe open new doors or go in directions that we wouldn't have gone in. 
suffering can um, you know help us to know and discover gifts we didn't know we had. Uh, suffering, of course, reminds us that this world ain't it. This is not our oyster. Uh, God, God is uh, something far greater waits for us. So there's a lot of wisdom it, it brings about. Suffering brings a lot of wisdom. I think as my father lay dying, his last six months were difficult for him. And he was a form of, there was a little bit of dementia mixed in with other physical sufferings. And, um, but I think those are probably the most important six months of his life. You know, during those times, he buried the hatchet. He, he made, uh, he made um, you know, forgiveness with other people. He turned his eyes to heaven. Uh, he was uh, excited to go and meet God and be with his wife, my, my mother, who had died a couple of years before. And, but his whole perspective changed, and he and I even had the talk. You know, not to tell on my father too much, but he was never all that happy that I became a priest. And my two brothers, who were both military guys, he was really into their lives. And, you know, because he was a military man. And um, he thought I was throwing my life away as a priest. But, you know, he came back to the church uh, about 15 years before he died. And little by little, I think he came around to the fact that um, I was meant to be a priest. And, you know, he and I kind of had that talk. And suffering has a way of bringing this stuff around. It brings it to the brings it to the top. That's why, again, if you want to hear this, you know, one one answer to this physician-assisted suicide nonsense is is that look, you know, it's the experience of the human family that sometimes those are the most important times of our life, and likewise, your your right to die becomes my duty to die. So mm-hmm. it's a very selfish thing to do, and it undermines suffering and and the and the value of the lives of those who suffer. So I, I think that's about the best I can do with it. I, I think obviously dying is the, the most ascetical thing we do. Psalm 27 says, um, um, there's only one thing I ask of the Lord, this alone I seek to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and look at his beautiful presence, you know. And you see, what really, can any of us say that right now for real? You know, so we have to kind of get there. And it's usually our deathbed that finally gets us there. All I want now is to go and be with God. And we really mean it. Um, but before that time, we're, we're like, I hope this talk went well tonight. You know what I mean? You have all kinds of other things on our plate. But at the end of the day, suffering brings us to that point and finally dying. But really, in a way, my father, if I can just use his life again, and my father was dying all his life. You know, his, his daughter, my sister, had mental illness. and She died at age 30. He gave her back to God. He, like I, gave back his thin figure and hair and gave all that back to God. And eventually, you know, my mother died. And um, then he sold the family home and um, all the stuff that was familiar to him. And he went to a retirement community. And then within six months, he was dead. And all I can say is, you know, he kept giving back, giving back. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a dying or putting to death the things of this world. And uh, uh, finally, when he'd given everything back except himself, God could hear his call and say, all I want now, God, is all I have is you. And God called him home. And I've seen that with other people, parishioners, my grandmother, others. There's a a long period of our life that we're, I think the first 15 to 25 years of our life, we spend a lot of time acquiring. Um, But by by, by age 25, we start to slip downhill and it's downhill from there. And it's just a fact. But there's a beauty and a value in that. Maybe a final thought, just as a picture for you. I go to like anybody, any priest, I go to nursing homes and visit and there's usually in every nursing home an area they call memory lane or something like with the dementia. Mm-hmm. Sorry. There they are holding dolls and, you know, wearing diapers and 
They can hardly talk. They just go, yeah, 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 yeah. And they sing, you know, and you say, my God, these people ran businesses. One was a politician, you know, big, you know, you look at them now, they're like little children. And Jesus says, yeah, isn't it beautiful? You say, no, it's terrible. Look at this. No, it's beautiful. What do you mean? Jesus, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, suffering has a way of doing that for us. We go and we fall on our knees and we say, Daddy, God, I'm scared. And that's how we inherit the kingdom. Um, I would like to, just in the interest of time, Monsignor, end with with one last question from from Elizabeth asking about whether it's, shall we say, dangerous to combine um, sort of worldly ends with spiritual means. Like if I fast, I'm also going to lose weight. Or if I don't hit the snooze button, I might be more productive. Is there danger in that? Or should we just rejoice in sort of the worldly uh, consolations that can come from being more ascetical? Well, if worldly motives are all you got, go with it. (laughs) (laughs) But all of us hope that we have something higher and better because we know, look, I mean, in a way, and I, I I don't mean to talk too much about myself, but I'm fat, but I, when I was thin, I wasn't virtuous with food. I would eat a whole can of Pringles and Oreos. I could eat these things without any damage. Um, I, but when I got into my mid-30s and then certainly by 40, it just didn't work anymore. And so in a way, I eat a lot less now just for my health <laughs> I mean, I, than I ever did. Um, but I'm still struggle. But at the end of the day, if I get into this attitude that I just want to lose weight for appearance reasons, there's a certain vanity, maybe emptiness to that. It probably won't sustain me. So I I would just say, look, there's nothing wrong with having secondary goals. If I could, you know, if a person can lose weight, they probably will be healthier. Maybe their joints will be less, you know, sore. Um, You know, they can fit in the bathing suit or whatever. Uh, You know, that's fine. There's nothing evil about that. But I would say that we wanted to be careful because if you're going to abstain and, and um, uh, you know, f- uh, moderate, uh, try not to do it as a pagan would. You know, try to have some higher goals in mind, too. You know, I'm looking for God. And even if I don't lose weight, I've still done a good thing. You see, and I think that's the key question. You know, if I don't get the worldly goal, well, I just say, well, there was no good. I'm not doing that anymore. Or then, well, no, I learned that I, I learned how to moderate and limit and I learned that I could do without certain things. And um, so that was good enough in itself. And I I got closer to God. So, you know, that would be, I think, the way I'd answered that. Well, this has been a wonderful evening with you, Monsignor Pope. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, thank you. You've been very generous and kind. Would you mind uh, closing us with a prayer and your blessing? Yes, Lord. um, It's very easy for us to become... Very peevish, very small-minded, very focused on immediate comforts. And um, so help us, Lord, through asceticism of abstaining or moderating that we can um, discover that there's more to life than just immediate pleasures, but that there's something greater to be found in walking with you and hearing your truth and being open to all the gifts you give us. And finally, Lord, to leave this world had to go to a place of joys unspeakable and glories untold. So, Lord, may all you bless us who have reflected for a little time on this and give us breakthroughs where necessary and help us to stay humble 
And may the blessing and the peace of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come upon all of you and remain with you forever. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.